You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey, everybody. I'm Jacob Harrington. I'm here with Steve Klabnik. Steve, you want to say hello and talk about what your day job looks like? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on, Jacob. So this is kind of a funny moment to be asking me this question because earlier this month, I quit my job and I do not currently (laughs) yet have another one. Um, Before before I quit that job, though, I was working at Mozilla on the Rust programming language full time, um, being in charge of documentation. And then I also did some sort of extracurricular sort of work around community stuff with like talking at conferences and things. I think that's a really important thing to do to make good documentation. So it wasn't technically part of my job, but I treated it as though it was sort of part of my job. We'll see what's what's happening next. I don't actually know yet. I'm kind of talking to some companies and sorting it out, but there's definitely some stuff I'm excited about still in the Rustish space. But uh, but yeah, we'll see how the future, what the future holds. <laughs> cool. What What parts of your previous role did you really enjoy and what are you looking for in future roles? Yeah, I think the thing that I enjoyed the most was um, like, being able to work on something and like build something from the relatively early days. So I got involved in Rust about six years ago, a little over six years ago. And uh, it was very, very small back then. There was only probably 20 or 30 people in the IRC room, if I remember correctly. Um, It felt that way, regardless of whether that was literally true or not. Um, And so being able to kind of have the ability to, you know, create a space the way that I wanted it to exist and kind of help guide things along from a really early stage was definitely really cool. And a lot of that involves like talking to people and, you know, doing that kind of um, stuff as well. Like, I think that's part of my favorite part of what I was previously doing as well is just being able to talk with people all over and help them solve their problems and do all those kind of things. Um, in the future, I am not 100% sure yet, which is kind of also sort of fun, but a thing you can do. Uh, wh- things I am excited about are like continuing to use Rust and, and do stuff with Rust. Um, but I'm also very excited about WebAssembly, and luckily Rust and WebAssembly are very closely related at this point. And so um, I'm thinking about maybe sort of switching my focus from being like, I'm working on Rust, but WebAssembly is kind of cool, to I'm working on WebAssembly and Rust is kind of cool. Um, we'll see how that kind of goes. Um, but uh, it's definitely something I'm excited about, regardless of what my job is going to end up being. Very cool. You talked about starting out with Rust early on with that IRC channel of 20 or 30 people. How did you find yourself in that IRC channel? So I've always loved programming languages. And it's kind of a thing I've always liked to do is like check out new ones and learn obscure ones and sort of go through all the different stuff. And um, I grew up on a farm, sort of not in the middle of nowhere, nowhere, but, you know, definitely a rural community. And I was home for Christmas visiting my family. So I had nothing really to do other than sit around and read Hacker News. Um, (laughs) Not literally nothing, but, you know, like, uh, that's definitely part of it. And uh, there was this thing that came up that said this new version of Rust had been released. And I had heard the name briefly before, but I couldn't really remember why and uh, decided that it was like a thing I wanted to check out. And so I had the uh, the time because I was sort of on that break. Um, and so I read their introductory material and I thought it was pretty cool. But when I sat down to actually write some code, it wasn't working. And so they said, hey, if you need help, get on IRC channel. So that's kind of what I did. And um, the reason I decided to stick around because their response to me having troubles as a beginner was not you're a stupid <laughs> go away but like oh my gosh a new person like welcome we're excited to see you like this is a sort of a new thing 
Um, and so that their friendliness was sort of what drew me in. And that's what I wanted to like help maintain as time went along. Right. So like positivity is contagious in many ways. And so we kind of were able to keep that sort of tone for a long time. And that's why Rust is sort of regarded as being a relatively friendly place to be in, in the programming world. Um, is because many of us early people wanted it to be that way and sort of kept it that way by doing the work over a long period of time. So was Rust your first programming language to contribute to, or did you work on something else first that was really similar? Yeah, it was the first one that I did as a job. But before that, I had submitted a couple of patches to Ruby itself, although mostly for like documenting the stuff, which I mean, was the job I did on Rust as well. It's not like I was a big compiler hacker, but uh, I had submitted a bunch of documentation and some small pull requests to Ruby um, before. Uh, actually, I'd sent one pull request that was like really absurd and kind of interesting. Um, the, there was a bug in the Emacs formatter for Ruby for a long time, and a lot of the core contributors used Emacs to do their work. And what that bug was, was it wouldn't handle indentation correctly all the time. And so I submitted a pull request to the standard library to fix all of the indentation, because like some lines for like a three-line indent or three-space indent have like space-space, tab, space-space. And so like turning those into all spaces was a big thing. And uh, some projects like to do those kind of cleanups and others don't, but Ruby was okay with it. And so I went through and like reformatted the entire standard library basically. Um, and so that was that that practice kind of got me, you know, interested in doing this kind of work when Rust came along. Rewinding a little bit, how did you actually get into programming? So um the thing about me and getting involved in programming is I basically was the most stereotypical story that exists with regard to this. I think the only way it could have been more stereotypical is if I lived in California. Um, but basically, um, I was a little kid. I was about six or seven years old, probably seven. And um, I was visiting my grandparents and my, my uncles uh, came home and he had been working in the computer industry and he needed to explain to his parents, my grandparents, uh, like what he did. And so he brought home a computer to be like, you know, this is the thing that I do all day. Uh, and uh, so I happened to be there at that moment and saw it and, you know, tried it out and was like, this thing is really cool and sort of what I want to do with myself from now on. Um, and so that was like a Mac plus, um, and the like first thing I did was play this text adventure game called Colossal Cave Adventure. And so, uh, you know, you type like go west, go north, pick up key, you know, fight pirate, um, and all these kind of things. And so I was just super hooked. And so, uh, you know, after a while, um, my uncle sort of like, uh, you know, helped saying like, point me towards like, okay, this is the kind of stuff you need to do. And so um, he didn't really tutor me, but he like pointed me to like, here's a good book, go read it. Uh, and <laughs> so I like learned about programming mostly by reading books and then like trying these things out um, on this computer. And uh, it sort of stuck with me and I uh, got lucky enough that that became a real job by the time I was old enough to get real jobs. And, you know, now we have the tech industry as it is today. Uh, so kind of I got lucky that I happened to like a thing that, uh, you know, became viable um, as a job later. So that was cool. Yeah. I, I wonder you have what you describe as a stereotypical start, but I think it's definitely not the average intro to computers. <laughs> um, definitely. Maybe by now the right way to put it would be like the mythological start. Like it's the story that's supposed to be the average, even though by now we've grown to the point where it definitely is not the average anymore. I think that's I think that's a really good point you made, yeah. One thing that I'm curious about with regard to that that, you know, introduction to writing code and technology, 
Did you ever struggle with imposter syndrome while learning or is it something that you never encountered just because it was so organic for you? Yeah, it definitely is something that um, I have struggled with at various times. And a lot of that has to do with um, basically like crappy people online. Like I don't feel that way very often about myself, but uh, I spend a lot of time on the internet and there's a lot of people who say a lot of garbage things. And so um, especially when I came to Rust, it's like a lower level programming language and Ruby is a very high level programming language. And so there were a lot of people who were like, oh, if a Ruby person is on the Rust core team, the Rust language can't be low level because, you know, like Ruby people are stupid and they only do web stuff and they only know high level things. And so, uh, you know, that kind of stuff definitely, you know, even though I try not to let it get to me, still does um, at times. Uh, and so a lot of it's that. But, um, you know, I, I've also been blessed with a relatively high degree of self-confidence. And so if anything, my problem is usually that I assume I know too much whenever I don't actually know it. Um, but, uh, but there's definitely like lots of moments and times where, you know, I am not sure if I'm doing the right thing or if everything's totally wrong and maybe I'm just stupid and all that stuff definitely is, is true. Even after you have like decades of experience working on this stuff. So in those, those instances where people were able to get under your skin or, you know, irritate you and make you doubt yourself, what was your methodology for dealing with that? Yeah, I think there's sort of two ways, um, and one is useful to new programmers, and one is sort of not, but maybe a little bit. Um, I'll do that one first. The first one, like, basically, I try to rem look, look back at the things I've actually accomplished and be like, yes, I did those things, and they were meaningful, and, you know, like, no matter what those people say, uh, you know, I still have done a lot of good in the past and still have the ability to do a lot of good in the future, you know, on a smaller scale that can be like, you know, I knew something this month I did not know last month. Like I'm continuing to grow and learn just like everyone else. Um, and that sort of dovetails into the, the first part, which is remembering that like computers are so complicated that there is nobody who knows everything. Like it's physically impossible. If you, you know, let's say, you know, like assembly language, which is like regarded as a super low level intense thing. Well, below that, there's the CPU design and the hardware uh, and so, you know, you may not know a lot about that. Or if you do, like, you know, maybe you know a bit about how hardware is organized, but you don't know about the physics of how the hardware works. And, you know, eventually you get down to like the lower levels of physics and like people don't even know that as like humanity doesn't know that, right? <laughs> so we have like the Nobel Prize in physics or whatever is because at some point, like someone does not know how this thing like quote unquote actually works. And so remembering that, you know, people sort of, know different areas but don't know their own areas um you know helps you recognize like okay maybe this person is saying a, a negative thing because they don't think i know as much in their preferred area but there's probably a lot of things that i know that they don't know because they did not work on a thing like that like you know a lot of low-level people um don't know anything about web development and couldn't tell you anything about all that stuff. And that's a super rich, complicated area of development that, uh, you know, is like still super valuable and good regardless of what those jerks say. Um, <laughs> so, you know, being like, okay, yeah, I may not know the last little teeny bit of assembly, but like, you know, you don't know how CSS works and that is also difficult, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I'm actually bad at CSS, but like, uh, you know, just as an example of, of some kind of thing that's difficult in a web context. Um, so yeah, I think like remembering the good stuff you've done and your path forward, and then also kind of like, you know, remembering that they're just jerks, um, those kind of things can be helpful, at least for me. 
So when you when you do your outreach work, which I know you give a lot of talks and and create some content, and also you write a lot of documentation, how does that perspective impact the way you try to teach others? I think that the the biggest thing for writing good documentation is empathy, because when someone is reading the docs, it's because they don't know how to do something yet and they want to learn how to do it. And so you need to figure out what your users don't know and what they need to know and then have already written the thing that they need to read, right? Like in some sense, it's kind of this weird, like tell the future kind of aspect. And obviously, you know, there's tools to get around that kind of thing, but you sort of have to be able to like figure out, you know, where someone is going and what they need to get them over the next kind of like hump. Um, And so I think that a lot of, um, a lot of this has changed over time because, you know, like as I sort of have grown in this capacity, I'm able to like be a bit more chill about these kinds of things. And like, sort of like what I said previously, right? Like some people know some areas and some people don't know other areas. And so you kind of have to pick and choose if you're writing good docs, you have to be like, okay, I'm writing this documentation for someone who does not know X and they need to know X, but they may know Y and Z. Like how can I use Y and Z to help teach them X and sort of figure out those kinds of things. Um, and so a lot of there's, oh, I should back up slightly. There's a, uh, there's a problem that happens a lot when people ask for questions online called the XY problem. Have you ever heard of this before? Uh, no, I haven't. So the XY problem is basically when you go into a chat room and you say, Hey, I need some, uh, help doing X. And then someone asks, you know, well, uh, you know, let me ask you a question back about Y and, this is like a problem because sometimes when someone asks a question, their, their their question reveals certain other things about their problem, and the person helping them wants to dig into those details for whatever reason. Um, but sometimes people get annoyed about this because they're like, there are certain circumstances that you don't know about, and that's why I'm asking this question this way. And so just give me the answer to X, dang it. Um, <laughs> and so there's kind of this like issue where sometimes answering someone's immediate question you know, may not be helpful to them because if they're sort of going down the wrong path, you want to point them on the wrong path instead of helping them get down the wrong path better. But sometimes that can be annoying on the questioner side because that path isn't actually bad because of details you may or may not know about. Um, So like uh, to give you an example of this question, like maybe uh, someone says, hey, I'm trying to download this package from the website and it's not working. And, you know, it says there's an invalid SSL certificate. And if you were like, well, you know, how do you check that validity? And is this right or wrong? Like that may be helping them down the wrong path, which is like, is your internet even working at all? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, but because th- that that failure could be a symptom of this other problem. But if you as like the asker are like, I am in a restricted corporate environment where our internet is really weird and I know these things are there and that's, that's working. It's just this one pure thing. You know, there's this sort of like back and forth. Um, so being aware that this can be a problem on both ends and trying to figure out like if someone, you know, is asking a weird question because they have some sort of special context or if they just, you know, happen to stumble across it is like really, really difficult and something I'm still trying to like work on, um, you know, with this kind of thing. And I think a thing that I touched on earlier that's kind of related is knowing what audience you're writing something for is really important. So if you're like doing a thing and it's for web developers, then you want it to be very different than if you were, it was for embedded developers or whatever. And that can seem kind of obvious in the you know big picture, but what if it's like for someone coming from Rails, they need this, and for someone coming from Django, which is the Python web framework, then they need that. 
And so, you know, they're both coming from very similar backgrounds, but slightly different ones. And maybe there's certain things that will help them better one way or the other. Um, so kind of knowing who you're talking to is also a big uh, part of doing the thing right. Something I've been thinking a lot about more lately. How did you get into the space where you're teaching others about technical subjects and what made you want to do that? So um, my early career was kind of weird. Um, I dropped out of college to do a startup and then that startup failed because it was a startup. Uh, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself, but for various reasons, I decided that I wanted to get a uh, English degree. And so I needed to finish my bachelor's to do that. So I went back and finished my bachelor's and I got accepted to do a, a master's degree in English, but I ended up not doing that for other kind of reasons. Um, and so I was doing some like consulting work and I knew I wanted to work on open source and kind of like do these kind of things. Um, and so at a conference, I happened to meet someone who uh, was like, man, so I have this like training business where I like teach people how to program stuff in Ruby and Rails, but I have too much clients and, you know, I'm just one person, but I don't have enough to really hire a full-time second person. So I'm kind of stuck. And I had sort of been looking for something. And so I was like, hey, that sounds interesting. Like, let's talk about this. And so I ended up taking down some of my regular consulting and filling it with this teaching stuff instead. And um, I decided that I really, really liked it. Um, and I, I thought that I might like it because I have, I've always been the kind of person that like hangs out on the forums or on the chat room and is like answering questions from people. And so I thought it might be something I would like. But really what it comes down to and what I realized after I liked it so much was that I had been, when I did the startup, I had been working on an application. And that's cool because all the people that use that application, in theory, I would be helping them. Um, it went out of business, so I'm not. But like, you know, if you build a successful app, you help all the users of your app. But if you work on, you know, like, so in this analogy, I went from working on my program to working on Rails because my app was written in Rails. So if I worked on the framework, I would be able to help every single application that used Rails. And so that means I would be able to help way more people than just my application because I'd be helping tons of applications and sort of the same thing when you go into a language like you know uh, you're able to help every kind of program in that language not just the things that uh, use that particular framework so I was like thinking about teaching is like okay if I could write code all day um, you know I would get like one Steve's day of code per day but if I can teach other people how to program then say I teach 30 people and say they're as good as me now then they would be doing 30 days of Steve's work every day. And so I can make a much bigger impact on the world by teaching others how to program than I can by doing the programming myself. Um, and documentation kind of came out of that too. Like documentation is sort of teaching where the teacher is not physically present. Um, and so, you know, if I can post something online and a thousand people read it, then that's even more that I can teach in a classroom. Um, and so I sort of saw this as an opportunity to like help the most people in the widest way possible. Um, and that's kind of what attracts me to the teaching and documenting stuff. What would be your advice to somebody who wants to break into that, but is currently in more of that application developer space and doesn't really know how to transition? I think the, the, the most difficult part about it is having the time and being persistent. And so like sort of one of the weird things about open source is there's just never enough people that are actually able to do it. Um, and so maybe a lot of projects aren't good at helping you help the project, but they all want more people to help. Um, and so one way that you can sort of get started is by just like, just doing it. 
which sounds dumb, but let me like dig in slightly more to that. Like, uh, if you you know have a project you want to contribute to, the best way to do is to try to like figure out if they have said anything about how to help them. And so GitHub has really helped to this. Now they have the contributing.md for projects, which is like fairly standard these days. And so if you look at a project's contributing.md and you like check it out, a lot of times people have written something sort of basic about you know here's what's going on. Um, Another way, if there's not an explicit one, so if there's bugs that are open um, and you know nobody has said anything about those bugs, you can uh, either decide to try to work on a pull request to fix that bug, or you can leave a comment saying, hey, I was thinking about trying to work on a pull request to fix this bug. Does anyone have any advice? Um, but like being able to see what currently exists and then asking questions um, is helpful. And to sort of get back to what I said about persistence and time, you may find that the first project you do this with no one might answer or maybe they answer and they're kind of jerks and that's okay that just means that project is not actually worth helping and you should go find another one um so i like to don't think about those like incidents as being like something that's absolutely terrible about you but remembering that like people sometimes are bad at things online um and so you know going out and saying like okay you know if you get a negative response being like that doesn't mean that i'm terrible that just means this project sucks and i should go find a different project um and so like figuring all this out takes a ton of time and so it's very difficult because you have to like figure out all these things and then sort of put yourself out there and see if it kind of like works or not um and then you know if, it, if it's successful instead of unsuccessful well then you've made one contribution so time for number two and number two is like thousands of times easier than number one um, because now you've already done it once and so you know all the steps and you know who to talk to and you have this kind of like basic sort of outline set um and so yeah the, just like remembering that the first contribution is the hardest part i think is is my biggest advice um and excuse me a lot of it just comes down to persistence um you know maybe within a project or between projects and just kind of like keep trying until something works and works out um and that can be that can be tough yeah i agree it's a little bit intimidating to jump into open source but so far in my career i've seen open source as sort of an investment the work i've done has made me a lot more valuable to the company i work for and made me has exposed me to a lot of opportunities that I otherwise wouldn't be exposed to. Totally. How has being in open source really impacted your career? It's, it's, it's really made my career. I would say rather than impacted, it's sort of like, and I, I kind of picked it this way. I wanted to work in open source. And so I sacrificed a lot of other things in order to get it. But um, you know, like, like the ability to do that kind of work, has sort of um, been the key to like everything that I've done for the last long time. Like almost all of the code that I've written professionally has been open source um, rather than closed source. And so it's been a tremendous, tremendous boon to my ability to get things done and to like make myself known in the world and do things like get jobs. Um, and so it's, it's been super helpful. Um, and that, that still though only applies within some contexts. So, you know, like, if I happen to be known for doing contributions in one community, that doesn't necessarily mean it will help me as much when I want to switch communities, or maybe they'll have heard like, you know, good or bad things through rumors. And so like, um, you know, it's not always universally positive, but uh, you know, it definitely is like, there's nothing better to say to an employer than like, you can go look at how I work because it's available on the internet for you to read. 
Um, you know, like there's not like you when you have this track record that's like not only a track record but also one that's public. You know, it's very helpful for people. Um, I have a lot of conflicted feels about this that people use people's open source as like a way to get jobs. Um, but uh, you know, if you can manage to do it in the first place, it's definitely beneficial. Um, so yeah. So you've kind of taken a leadership role in the open source projects you've worked on. What was that like? And do you think there's anything specific about you that makes you good at those leadership roles? Yeah, I think that um, sort of in a similar way of wanting to help as many people as possible, uh, you know, the the higher up you go and sort of the organization of a project means you can do more and more. And so that also makes you be able to help more people. And so that's kind of what's motivated me to uh, to do it. I, I do think there's some aspects um, of it that I'm good at and some aspects that I am bad at. So I uh, appreciate you saying this made me good at them, but I, <laughs> I am not always thinking that way. Maybe call back to the little imposter syndrome thing from earlier. Like, I'm not entirely sure I'm great at it, but, you know, we'll see. Um, I think that uh, the skills you need to sort of be a leader in open source are more around a combination of like having a certain degree of vision and the word is a little overrated. I'm sorry. I'll dig into what I mean in a second, along with the like ability to sort of work with other people. Um, a lot of like the open source leadership stuff is basically like management work. And so that means like a lot of talking and a lot of figuring out schedules and a lot of, you know, like figuring out what to do if somebody is not able to do the thing that they were, you know, trying to do beforehand um and so uh like being able to you know think about your project in a bigger level than just like what's the next bug that i need to fix but thinking about like where does the project need to go in the future and how do we get there is the like sort of big task amongst most um people who are kind of like in leadership of an open source project and so um i think that i like to dream big and like think big and so i think that's uh helpful although you know uh if you if you like think too big, that can be a problem sometimes, right? Too. So, uh, you know, it's definitely not a thing that's um, always positive. But uh, yeah, I would say those are probably like a lot of it is just a lot of talking and a lot of working through feelings. Um, <laughs> there's actually a conference called Open Source and Feelings that I've always meant to go to, but I've never been able to yet. That's like solely about this aspect of maintaining open source. It's like, how do you, you know, deal with all the things that go on and, you know, all those kind of things? Um, so it's definitely a big component of it humans build the technology that we have and so there's like sometimes i think the technical non-technical distinction doesn't make a lot of sense because like as somebody who is deeply technical most of the work i do is not technical but it's still important work and is just as much like if if more of the work in the project is non-technical than technical then how can you say it's a technical project even if the final output is software you know what i mean so like uh it's always interesting because i am i'm always struggling with these two aspects of things um, because a lot of the work that I do is often considered non-technical and that's another route for these people saying mean things about me online that makes me sad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of it is just completely not about the code directly, um, but about these meta issues. As an engineer, how have you been able to build those quote unquote soft skills? I think a lot of it is, at least for me, um, is just practice and a lot of practice. Um, and so the the like one of the first projects I did in open source was a project that I inherited from someone and I was kind of de facto in charge. And there was only one or two people who helped out. 
And so it was it was much easier to get going because like we didn't have a ton of contributors. It wasn't super busy all the time. And there was, you know, not like a lot of this kind of stuff to actually do, really. Um, and so that kind of helped me practice. And so being involved in smaller projects and just sort of like working on that stuff and then slowly moving to bigger ones, um, and, you know, as time goes on, has definitely been helpful. Um, that doesn't mean a bigger project can't be a great way to start because sometimes bigger projects have a better, like they have practiced onboarding people and like getting people involved and all that kind of stuff. And so in some ways it can be easier to go to a big project, but the stakes are higher and it's a lot more complicated. And so um, in some ways a smaller project is also um, extremely useful. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of like did it. And, you know, when I did bad at it, tried to learn from it and do better the next time and just repeat that process over and over and over again. <laughs> I feel like that's the answer to how you get better at almost everything, but especially in this industry. Yeah. And it surprises people every time. Totally. People think there's like a, a magic pill or a silver bullet that will make you good at this stuff. And in reality, it's mostly trial and error for pretty much everybody. Totally. I think it's... Uh, Definitely true. We like we like to talk about programming as though it's an engineering discipline, but we don't really listen to the way that engineering works to make it happen. <laughs> um, and I also think that some of that may be why people think this way too, because like you know, if you think about when people build a bridge, you're like, it didn't take them 15 times to build the bridge; they just built it. But that's not actually true, because there's tons of experience from building previous bridges that we like, you know, put into these kind of works and shenanigans, etc. Um, yeah trial and error and practicing over and over and over again it's, it's super super important for many different aspects of our industry uh regardless of like open source or not frankly is there any advice that you find yourself giving frequently to newer engineers or engineers that are trying to kind of level up in their seniority sort of yes and sort of no and part of the reason why i say no is because uh, i like having worked in open source i've kind of had a weird career path and so i haven't worked at a lot of bigger companies and so i know they have their own sort of special ways of working and i haven't really learned a whole ton about that yet so uh i try at least these days to not talk about things i don't know about <laughs> so <laughs> people are like you know oh i'm a level three you know junior developer and i'm trying to get to level four you know developer without the junior like how do i do that like, <laughs> i don't know anything about how microsoft you know ranks their employees or you know whatever um and so so it could be a little tough. Um, but I think that mostly like um, for me, like the, let me put it this way. There's a blog post I read um, a couple years ago by this guy named Terrence Tao. And he's a mathematician. And he has this sort of like model of learning that's put into three different phases. And he uses this in the context of math, but I will switch his examples to be in the context of programming because I think it applies to almost anything. Um, but just to be clear, he did this about like math grad students, not um, programmers. I think I just think it applies really well. And the first one is basically like when you're a beginner, you don't really have any strong grasp, grasp on the formalisms and you sort of rely on intuition a whole ton. Um, and so, uh, you know, what this means is you're kind of like you often try a lot of stuff because you don't know advanced techniques and tools. And so you're not able to sort of use them effectively. So you do things kind of like in a semi haphazard kind of way. Um, and then when you're an intermediate, uh, you started to learn these tools and techniques. And so you apply them like everywhere, sometimes to the detriment of, you know, what your experience might tell you, because you are, you know, really trying to dig into these kind of like, you know, I've learned this new useful thing. And so I want it to kind of like, you know, I want to use it everywhere. 
Um, and then finally, like when you've mastered something, you have this strong background in these skills, but you also let your intuition guide you a little bit more because your experience is to the point where you don't need to do that like formal analysis every time um, because you're able to like let the experience help you out. And so this is the way that I feel whenever I learn um, you know, anything in programming. And so I would also sort of meta thing say like leveling up your ability in programming is really broad. So like, you know, maybe I would be leveling up my web development programming or my embedded development programming or whatever. Um, and so sort of the way is this practice goes like thinking about like, okay, you know, um, did I learn a new thing and am I trying to apply it every single possible place? Um, you know, or have I not learned something yet? And so I sort of feel like I'm just stumbling in the dark. That's kind of the way that I feel when I get started with stuff. It's like, I'm like, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm just kind of doing stuff to see if it works. And then once I recognize like, oh yeah, I'm learning these patterns, I'm using them over and over again. That's when I feel like I've gone from being a beginner to being an intermediate. And then once I'm like, eh, I know I could do it that way, but uh, you know, I think I'm not frightened but now because of these reasons, I'm like, oh man, I've actually gotten good at this. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. so I think that uh, in terms of like applying this to your practice, like being self-aware enough to know where you are at in that cycle is extremely helpful. Um, and a lot of people get really, really excited in the intermediate phase. And this is kind of why we get to focus on things like design patterns. It's because people are like, oh yeah, I know this rule. And now that I know this rule, I'm going to apply it everywhere. And so like, you know, it's like, this is always, you know, every method has no more than four arguments because like, that's a thing. And so I just do it that way, no matter what. Um, <laughs> And I think that's an important part of learning and development. So I also don't want to say that's bad, but like, you know, if you're trying to go from, I don't know anything to intermediate, just like learn about a thing and then use it constantly. Um, and that's how you gain the experience to let you go from the intermediate step to the advanced step, because you've used it for both good and for evil. Um, and you know, when you've used it for it's in a bad way in the past. And so, you know, you're able to say like, okay, I learned that this isn't a bad way to do this. Um, so I won't do that again. Like a lot of stuff, a lot of judgment calls that I've made are not because I'm like good at imagining what is good and what is bad. It's because I've made a lot of mistakes and, you know, I'm able to not repeat them again because I'm able to be like, okay, that was a mistake. And now my, we use my experience going forward to not make the same mistake over again. Do you think that ability to learn from your mistakes is a skill that you've developed or one that you've just always had? I think it's a combination of both. Um, I do think that I am predisposed to sort of think that way, um, but it's also something that I've like actively had to put practice in um, as well over long periods of time, um, because you know it can be really uh, you know the only way to make mistakes is to fail, and so you have to be okay with failure. Um, and I am oftentimes very not okay with failure. <laughs> um, and so, you know, sort of being, getting into that mindset of like, it's okay if I don't do the best, I am gaining experience and that is still useful um, is something I've had to work on. But uh, I also am definitely like stubborn. And so the ability to sort of plow through and keep doing it again anyway is also helped by my personality, I would say. So um, it's definitely, definitely a bit of both things um, for sure. You already touched on it. But I like to ask everyone I interview to share with me some things they are bad at. And the reason for that, it's easy for me or someone like me to look at you and say, okay, so Steve has this knowledge of web development and systems programming or whatever, low-level programming. And he's been very successful in the open source arena in a, a very public space. And so 
he has some advantage that I don't have, like whether that's tangible, invisible or intangible or whatever. Totally. For some reason, you're good at this stuff. And anyone who's got a lot of self-doubt might think I can't do that because I don't have whatever quality is that, that Steve has. So to refute that, do you mind sharing some things you think you're bad at? Yeah, definitely. I think this is a great idea. Um, one thing I'm really bad at is organization. Um, I would be much more effective at open source if I was able to like do a better job of planning and getting things to be like in the right way. Um, this sometimes means that like small things slip up when they shouldn't. So for example, um, I've been helping someone with a pull request in the Rust world um, over the last month. And um, last week was my birthday. And so since uh, I don't have a job at the moment, I kind of like took most of the week off. Um, and so I had forgotten that I had forgotten to actually merge this pull request that I'd been helping that person with. Um, and if I'd been a little more organized, I would have remembered. And before I take off, before I took off for the week, I would have actually merged it. Um, and so I was like slightly failing that contributor in that way. But then uh, as, a, as a funnier part of that, somebody this morning was working on something that relied on that. And I was like, oh, yeah, we did that thing like two weeks ago. And so now you can do your thing on top of it. And they went and looked and were like, wait a minute, that's not actually done yet. And I had to go back and be like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Now I have to finish that first and then you can do your thing. And so this is like managed to, you know, my lack of organization has managed to make at least two different contributors days a little slightly worse. Obviously, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, but just like as an example, if I'd been a little more on top of things, I would have either fixed it before I left or I'd have known that I didn't fix it. So then I would have been able to tell that other person like, oh, yeah, I need to take care of this first before you can do your work. Um, and so that's something I definitely struggle with a lot. Um, I can, I'm like juggling so many plates all the time in so many different directions that it can be really easy to let stuff um, drop on the floor um, at times. Um, and so uh, I think that's definitely the, the thing that I'm the worst at at the moment that would be like so, so helpful if I could get better at. <laughs> um, in terms of other flaws, uh, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I mean, I obviously have a ton of them, but I don't know which ones are directly to open source and which ones are about being a human. Um, so maybe we'll just leave it with a lack of organization for now, but I assure you that is not my only flaw. <laughs> Do you have like a, a strategy for dealing with those flaws and like overcoming them? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> uh, working far too hard uh, all the time has usually been how I've done it. Like, oh yeah, I forgot that thing and it's due today. I will just work even later to like finish it today because oops, I should have had it done last week, but it's, it's has to be done now. Um, and so that's not like actually helpful. Um, it does mitigate some of the downsides sometimes, but you know, causes its own problems in the long run. Um, and I'm still trying to like sort of figure out, um, what to do to be better at the organizational side of things. So Steve, before we say goodbye, do you want to share some places on the internet? People can learn more about you. Yeah. So um, if you want to know exactly what I'm thinking at all times of day, regardless of whether or not it's a good thing to share it or not, you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> um, my Twitter is largely personal shenanigans and a lot of politics and some programming sometimes. Um, but it's kind of like a place that I just sort of vent. Uh, you know, I feel like once I uh, say a thing on Twitter, I can get it out of my brain. And so sometimes I'll just like post garbage there. But I've had several people remark when they like hang out with me in the real world for once, they're like, you are just like your Twitter account, actually. This is a pretty good representation of you. Um, so so there's that. 
you can also email me, uh, steve at steveglavnik.com, although uh, you know it can sometimes take a little while. As I said, I'm bad at management, and so my email backlog can be a month or two sometimes, and I feel terrible about that all the time, but somehow don't use that stress to actually answer emails, so it can be tough. Um, so, uh, so you can email me, and I will get back to you, but sometimes it can take a minute, and I'm sorry in advance. Um, and then I would say the other place I'm probably most active on the internet is Hacker News and Reddit, both of which are terrible, but I am kind of stuck with. Um, so, uh, you know, you may see me around the, the programming and Rust subreddits or, uh, you know, Hacker News in general talking about shenanigans. Cool. Well, Steve, I, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your experience and then being open about some of your struggles. Totally. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.